Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller? I had to buy three identical sweaters to get the fourth free. Ooh, you got fleeced. Next caller, what's your deal? I paid for 20 tanning sessions, but had to use them in a month. Now I'm orange. Ooh, you got burned. Next caller? I traded in my old Samsung at AT AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24+. Hmm, how's that bad? I got to choose from their best plans. So what went wrong? Nothing went wrong. And you're calling to... To request a song? You want a song. Of course. The choice is yours. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Citizen Chef is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey everybody, Tom Felicchio here, and welcome back to Citizen Chef. You know, listen, feeding people has always been my passion, and, and therefore I have been an advocate for fighting for food insecurity. And yes, people come to my restaurant, they spend a lot of money to eat, but I'm talking about fighting for people who are struggling to put food on the table. Healthy food is a basic necessity for survival. It brings families together. It brings joy. You know, think about when we celebrate holidays and just think about the importance of just sitting around a table and sharing a meal with your family every night. You get to unwind. You get to talk about the day. Well, what if you didn't have food to put on that table? How would you feel as a parent if all of a sudden you found yourself out of work and you were struggling to feed your family? You know, parents are out there right now skipping meals so their kids could eat. And so this is something that really I think is, is a, a basic necessity for so many people. Um, and, uh, and, and people are struggling. So this is why I was really excited to hear some truly historic news that the Department of Agriculture has made the largest permanent increase to the SNAP benefits since 1995. And if you listen to our episode with Dr. Kathleen Merrigan, you'll remember that SNAP is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, and it helps millions of Americans across the country get food on their tables. And so what is really exciting is that we have reevaluated the types of foods that can be included in the program. Americans now have, uh, they can make healthier choices on what they're feeding their family. Listen, this is, it's, it's a huge change. And, and uh, so I want to turn to the experts to talk about this. So today uh, we're talking to SNAP expert, Ellen Vollinger. Ellen is the legal director of FRAC, or the Food Research Action Center. 
and their stated mission is to eradicate poverty-related hunger and undernutrition in the United States. And they do that through research, advocacy, and by consulting with everyone who actually creates policy, uh, but also those people who are receiving the benefits as well. They're talking to the people who certainly need a place at the table. And uh, Ellen herself was responsible for directing FRAC's advocacy on behalf of SNAP. So there is no one better to talk about how these changes came to be and why are there welcome changes to the anti-hunger advocates. And so welcome to the program, Ellen Bollinger. Hello. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing okay. Thanks so much for doing this and having me on. So Ellen, listen, um, I, I wanted to talk to you because uh, I, I guess what's happened recently is, is fairly historic. Um, and uh, for our, our listeners um, that, that don't know, um, the SNAP program, uh, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, uh, which I would actually wish they would get rid of the supplemental and just turn it into the, the NAP program, the Nutrition Assistance Program. Uh, finally, we, we're making some headways after years and years of the benefits pretty much uh, staying the same for a long time. Um, we finally had some big changes and it's a, it's a technical um, change that I, I, I really thought would be interesting for people to understand how we actually calculate SNAP benefits. And there's something called the food plan. And there's there's three uh, three pieces of that plan. There's the thrifty, there's the low, and then there's the, you can just jump right in here now because I'm forgetting what the, the third one is. But we made some changes to this plan, and that's actually putting more money um, into people's pockets to purchase food. So, Alan, can, can you explain to us what the the, the what, what really happened to the thrifty food plan and what, where the changes are and what it's gonna how it's gonna make a difference for so many people who are struggling to put food on the table. Yeah, no, and Tom, thank you so much for having us. And you certainly are a leader in the effort to end hunger in America. And you were already aware even before COVID nineteen how much hunger existed in the United States. Um, and one of the pieces of inadequacy of being able to afford food and and being hungry is that SNAP, which is the most fundamental of the federal government's anti-hunger programs, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, as you said, it used to be called food stamps. It's the program that's available to all kinds of of Americans, and it's designed to help them afford a basic diet. When it was designed, the government picked one of its food plans. It has little different grades of food plans, and it picked the most meager one, called the Thrifty Food Plan. Just so people know, so this food plan is, is used for various things. I mean, number one, it's, it's used to calculate the amount of alimony someone has to pay for child support. It's also used how to calculate how many calories our, our uh, service members um, need to, you know, to, to survive, especially when they're fighting. So it's, it's used for a lot of different things, not just food stamps. Well, the different levels are. That's right. the yes. concept yes. of a food plan. Um, but unfortunately for... Um, purposes of adequacy of benefits for SNAP, the government has chosen for decades now the very lowest rung. And it's that thrifty food plan that's used only for SNAP, really, that, um, you know, it's only used for emergency food and SNAP. It's not what's used for these other needs. Uh, But it was still supposed to provide lower income Americans with um, a food package that they could afford based on SNAP, with SNAP benefits. So when SNAP is calculated, the government looks to what it costs to purchase the thrifty food plan. It's a, it's a market basket. It's actually good. The government puts together um, a set of different goods that are supposed to meet um, Americans' dietary needs. They're supposed to be within a lower range of cost. And that was done decades ago. 
Uh, over the years, as the government has you know, changed things to do with the dietary guidelines, as Americans are shopping and preparing food differently, even if they're not as good at preparing it as you are, Tom, people all have changed how they're preparing food. And the time that they have to do it is very different from what it was decades ago, especially with so many working families and um, two, two parent working families. It, time constraint is a real problem. And over the years, the Thrifty Food Plan was not really adjusted fully to take into account all those realities. Instead, people who were reviewing it to see whether there should be changes to it would feel that they needed to do it within the amount of money that was spent on the, on the then existing package. With a little bit of inflation adjustment, but largely just basically within working within those confines. And what is so significant about what has happened with this USDA review, it was directed to be done by Congress in 2018 in a bipartisan bill, but it's been undertaken by the Biden-Harris USDA. What's so historic about it is that for the first time after this food plan was set up, they actually asked the question, what would it take for Americans now to be able to have a lower kind of um, food cost package that would be more meaningful when it comes to healthier food options, things that reflect what we've learned about changes in the dietary guidelines and what we've learned about how people shop and prepare food. And then answer the question, this is what it costs, as opposed to starting out with, uh, well, we, we've got this certain cost, let's see what we do within it. And that is a game changer. It's a fresh look and, and they should be congratulated for doing it. Right, so let's clarify a few things here. So one, uh, this was, again, mandated under the last, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I, be I believe the, the last um, farm bill where changes could have been taken up by the USDA, unilaterally by the USDA, and under Trump's administration, Sonny Purdue just completely ignored it Well, we, and just chose not to address it at all. We don't know what they were doing behind the scenes. Right. Well, yeah, of course. Right. But but we have no evidence that they were on this path or that they were going to meet the deadline. Congress had told them to get this done by 2022. And so the Biden administration is very much on time with this. It's an overdue when you think about the kind of reviews that were really needed over decades this is overdue in that sense, but it's right on time in terms of what Congress told them to get done uh, by 2022. And it was in that bipartisan passed um, Farm Bill of 2018. So, yes, it's um, it, it's very well needed. And I would say that, you know, they look to scientific evidence when they made the change. That's what Congress asked them to do. They asked them to do an evaluation. They looked at that. They also, too, I think the researchers credits also look to the input of SNAP participants who, frankly, are as well um, uh, situated to tell us all what constraints they're under in trying to be able to obtain this diet that we would want to make sure people have the opportunity to get. So, again, they, they, they've made a, a change that's a much more realistic mix of healthier options that can be prepared by working families who may be short on time, as we all are. Right. And so I'll go back to that timepiece because, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe that, and this is why the timepiece is so important. The assumption was that if you were on food assistance, you weren't working. Therefore, you had what, 13 hours a week to prepare food, where I think the average household really only spends about seven, seven and a half hours a week preparing food. But the assumption was because 
you needed assistance, you weren't working, and therefore you had a lot more time. And therefore, you can buy things that weren't prepared or didn't create shortcuts. And is that roughly yes, like, I think, getting that right? Yeah, I think you, you know, absolutely. The, the, the assumptions behind the original food plan really don't reflect how Americans live today or who the SNAP participant is. Uh, so many. And now, now, and we know now the majority of SNAP recipients have at least one member of the family working. In, if they're, in, in if most they're cases, working, if they're working age, yes, yes, right, yes, yes. absolutely. Yes. And and so, yeah, th- very outdated assumptions. Assumptions about you know your transportation, your ability to uh, buy in bulk, your ability to store, what facilities you might have. Um, just very unrealistic in terms of. Um, where are we now? What would a modern look be? And so that's really what USDA tackled. And again, we we think that they, you know, they got it right. Yeah. And, and we know that, you know, for years, I've heard the stories of, and you knew, you knew that SNAP dollars weren't actually getting you through the end of the month. There were stories of people who would line up um, uh, the first day of the month and get them when their benefits got replenished on their, on their, on their card, uh, lining up at the grocery store the first of the month to go out and buy food because there was just nothing left in the refrigerator. And, and uh, so, yeah, so we've known for a long time that, that there wasn't adequate dollars. So let, let's get let's get to the dollars here for a second, because I think there's also something that's very misleading. So uh, a couple of things happened since the pandemic. Uh, um, SNAP was increased 15 percent um, because of the pandemic. Um, but then this was an additional increase. And so what what. I know there's numbers out there that sound like very big numbers in terms of the percentage that was added to the SNAP program. And that percentage was 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 28 percent. Is that correct? So the the increase in the value of the thrifty food plan was about 21 percent. OK, 21%. roughly that. But, um, you know, it, I think the thing that throws people off when they hear the percentages is that they're thinking about a program um, and they're thinking about what the aggregate spending is. They're often hearing mm-hmm. about billions of dollars. And I think right. for them to, I think, see it in perspective, before the pandemic, before there were these temporary boosts, and 15% is one of those boosts, but there's an even more impactful boost that's called emergency allotments that was done that also will be ending at some point. Uh, before those boosts, SNAP benefits only averaged about four dollars a person a day that's that little more than that that's about what it was the math the math's about 40 cents yeah i mean it's it's it right so this change is going to make the benefits better it's a more you know it's more in line with what the thrifty food plan should be but it is still not going to give snap households um a tremendous increase because when those temporary boosts expire and some of them are expiring very soon and others won't be too far behind. Then when you compare the difference in SNAP benefits pre this thrifty food plan change, you know, it's very, very, very modest. It's going to get them uh, somewhere close to, you know, a little more than $5 a day. I think around five twenty nine uh, a person a day, which and again, that's with a decimal point between the two and the nine. There are not a lot right. of zeros. When, you, when you're looking at it from the perspective of one SNAP household, they don't see all these zeros that show up. And so when you've got a very low benefit and you make any kind of a meaningful increase, it's going to sound like a big percentage. And that's because 
the reviewers who did reviews prior to this administration's evaluation were playing within that same package size that they were given and for decades never moved beyond that package size. They never really adjusted. They just said, well, what can we do within the constraints of kind of the existing type of package and what that general cost is? Um, The Biden administration did have a cost lens in the sense that even this package looks at a, a set of foods that are lower cost. They're, you know, but it's a broader range and a much better mix of healthier options. And also one that does take into account the way people shop and prepare and their time constraints. Can, can you uh, walk us through what that basket looks like? Because that's the other thing I think there's a misconception. Of, you know, again, you see these stories on, on Fox about people buying lobster tails, their snap dollars and things like that. Yeah, no, um, um, you know, people, people on, on a thrifty food plan plan, you know, should have um, access to a range of products. But with the old plan, some, some of the way it worked out, Yes, cheese was part of the old thrifty food plan, but it was something on the order of two ounces for a household for a week or something. I mean, very, very little um, amounts on some of the things that you would take for granted would be a piece of a of a diet. And of course, as people's and, and you mentioned this, Tom, as people had their benefits running out in a month, um, they were turning to emergency food, um, trying to do other things to cope, and often. They were foregoing when they had to stretch those dollars, particularly at the end of the month. They're going with options that aren't the optimum option, aren't the healthier part of the thrifty food plan. They're going where the calories are to fill the belly. So um, we do know from the kind of evidence you've cited, but also a report that was released this summer by the administration, that on the barriers to healthy eating for people while they're on SNAP, the biggest barrier? cost of food. I mean, that is just, um, you know, the biggie. And we know that when people have more um, opportunity to make the choice that is maybe lean meat or the healthier fruits and vegetables, when it's a more affordable choice, that's an easier choice that's more in reach. And this goes in that direction. It doesn't go far enough for people to have everything they need, but it's a it's it's such a welcome improvement. And as I say, overdue in the sense of what government should have done over decades. Yeah, it's interesting. I was, I was reading about a, a program in Boston that started during the pandemic where people were actually were getting direct payments uh, and 70% of the money they were given was spent, was spent on food. 70%. Yeah. And you're seeing that even now, Tom, in real time with, with one of the really good things that government's got going on right now, and that is the child tax credit that's getting benefits out to households and the early evidence that the Census Bureau found in terms of how people are spending those benefits, spending them on food is one of those big categories. Yeah. Right. And what was the cut in childhood hunger? We cut it in half, correct? Uh, Yes. I mean, that is when you look at, um, and it's not just the child tax credit, but certainly that's the big driver on that. When you look at the fact that there have been the boosts and SNAP benefits that have been making it more more possible for people to afford food during the pandemic. Again, these are separate from the way the Thrifty Food Plan operates, but separate boosts that Congress enacted last year and and then again this year. Uh, those have contributed. And then, of course, I know you've been very following school meals and, and, and know quite a bit about it based on your own personal history, that school meals are really important in cutting childhood hunger. And 
some of what government has done during this uh, pandemic, which is to create a program called Pandemic Electronic Benefit Transfer, EBT. That's the kind of credit card, debit card technology that's used to deliver SNAP benefits. They've been getting SNAP-like benefits to many, many households to help replace the value of the free school meals that kids missed when there were school closures and disruptions at, at schools during COVID. So those combined are really helping. I mean, right. So, yeah. So let's, let's so the listeners could, could put that in perspective. It's about 30 million children who use the school breakfast and lunch program, um, you know, per day. And when schools were closed, that money had to come from somewhere. And households didn't have it. They were counting on these, these, these children receiving, you know, breakfast and lunch at school. And so now all of a sudden, you know, parents had these children at home and they had to figure out a way to, to stress their dollar even further to make to, to, to put more food on the table. Um, and we see the same thing happening when there's, you know, whenever there's a snow day, I automatically think that we're going to have a problem here. In, in fact, when when I, you know, going back to March, when I realized that schools were going to be closed, one of the first person I, I called was actually Ellen Teller, who works with you uh, at, at FRAC, says, what are these kids going to do? And she said, they'll, there'll be an emergency feeding program. It'll be set up. It will happen. Um, and uh, so it, it gave me some comfort to, to hear that. More of my conversation with FRAC Legal Director Ellen Vollinger right after this break. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Let's talk about you know, the, the money. Yes, there's additional money and that's great. But we're also looking at low-income people that are facing what's called a you know a cliff, or you know some people call it a hunger cliff when it really has to do with benefits that are going to disappear once once they usually start moving out of SNAP if they if they receive a job and they're no longer eligible to receive SNAP benefits, um, everything's taken away at once, and and 
but typically, um, you know, they're still paying back bills. They may be high on rent and things like that. But we're also facing a different kind of cliff right now because so many benefits, including unemployment, including the um, uh, uh, the extra additional money because of the fifteen uh, percent that was added to SNAP, uh, it's going to go away. And so, can you want to talk about the cliff effect a little bit? Yeah, yeah, we're very worried about it because yeah. uh, these temporary boosts. There are two types in SNAP. One is called emergency allotments, and those have been very significant improvements in the size of allotments for households that were already at the maximum benefit level since since April under the Biden administration. They've been able to get ninety five dollars more on their monthly allotment. But for households that were at the very lowest, a household that pre pre covid would be getting sixteen dollars, one six for the month they've been able to get well over $200. And as soon as those emergency allotments end, they will go right back down. Um, Now, the 15% boost that you mentioned has been significant, but that sunsets at the end of September. So although the Thrifty Food Plan adjustment is not related to that, the fact that it will be in place is going to help mitigate um, that particular cliff, but it it's not going to mitigate whenever it is that these emergency allotments go away. And as you mentioned, SNAP households and people who are facing food insecurity, that's not the only thing that defines them or that they face. The loss of unemployment insurance from the federal help, that is going to be really bad news for this coming Labor Day. And of course, the rental assistance that's available um, is going to go away and hasn't had as good a take-up rate. We haven't been able to get that out to people sufficiently. And the moratorium on residential evictions is only into early October. So these are real pressures on families. And we do we work closely with a tech company called Propel. And they have an app that SNAP and WIC customers, Women, Infant, Children Program, they use that app to check on their balances for their benefits to see what they've spent, what they have left. It really helps them when they're going to a grocery store to know what they've got in the in the thing easily. And because they have 5 million SNAP subscribers, Propel has been checking with a sample, 5,000 of those households every month, might be a different set of households, but a sample of 5,000 of, of its households to see what's going on with them. And many, even as they're getting enhanced SNAP, are still struggling, turning to friends and family for additional help. But they're also struggling mightily with housing costs and debt and worried about being able to you know, pay the debt down. So these are things that um, are combining. Um, but just on the SNAP hunger cliffs, those are looming. And we've been advocating throughout the pandemic to encourage the government to do what should have been done with the last recession, which is do more on the stimulus side to get us out of this COVID crisis on the economic side. And that's what so many economists have said, that with the last recession, the Great Recession, some good recovery um, stimulus was provided, but it was too little, too short, and that they should not make, policymakers should not make the same mistake with this COVID recession. SNAP can be a piece of not only providing something that people will need to mitigate food hardship during COVID, but because of its economic stimulus value, the SNAP benefits turn over in the economy 
It's one of the best countercyclical tools the government has, and it can play a significant role in making sure that we as a, as a country get an economy and a recovery that's more robust, with more jobs, with better wages this time, and more equitable. Um, but if we pull back on these supports, food hardship is going to be significantly worse in a bad economy. So again, we're urging, let them continue with what is working right now. And as you say, you've seen that needle come down on childhood hunger when, when these benefits are out there. What, what you're referring to is that when, when people receive SNAP benefits, it's usually people who are uh, struggling for food on the table. Every single, that benefit, 100% of that benefit is spent. Okay. And so that goes into the economy. Now, typically for every dollar spent, it, it's usually uh, uh, creating a dollar seventy-five in economic activity because in the supermarkets in turn are hiring people because that money is flowing through the supermarkets. Um, and so it just creates this, this, this stimulus effect and actually helps, helps, you know, juice the economy. And I think this is what's the most important. I want, I want to actually talk about another program called the Double Bucks program that is so important because as we know in this country, nutrition is expensive. Calories are, are somewhat cheap. Um, but if you're trying to put healthy food on the table, it's, it's very expensive. And the Double Bucks program uh, enables uh, people that are, are shopping with SNAP dollars in a farmer's market um, to, if they're buying fruits and vegetables, they actually would get a, a coupon for double what they just spent. So if they spent $40 on fruits and vegetables, I'm just throwing that number out there, it's a big number, um, they get an additional $40. Now, the great thing about this is this money goes not to supermarkets, but directly to farmers. And in turn, they're actually really juicing the economy because they're, they're buying, I mean, they're, they're hiring more people to work the farm, they're buying seeds, they're, they're buying equipment. And so this is a, a program that, that is not only double bucks for the people who are using the program, but uh, almost a double boost to the economy. Yeah, Tom, it, you know, that program varies, of course, state to state and sure. how much it will double. But absolutely, you're right. The SNAP dollars, no matter where they're spent, help all along that food chain, including farmers. But you're right, when it's that direct sale by the farmer at a farmer's market, or there's even community-supported agriculture allowed mm -hmm. in SNAP, um, you know, there are different ways. Uh, that is very impactful. And having more uh, purchasing power does give them the opportunity to get more of their of their food that way. And I, I think it's it's a it's a no-brainer in, in a lot of respects. I don't know why uh, anybody would not think it's a pretty popular way to go. Yeah, no, it's a great way to go. So, you know, we, we touched on on time, but there's one thing else that something else that we're missing from this. Not everybody knows how to cook. Well, let me let me say this. One of the strengths of SNAP, we've, we've always felt at FRAC, is that it does run on the regular rails of commerce. I mean, that is one of the fundamentals of it. Government isn't setting up its own warehouses. It's not setting up its own distribution sites and things like that. It's it's working through the retail sector and it's using the regular EBT, electronic benefit transfer technology system, to get those payments um, you know, processed. And that allows people to get their food with SNAP benefits in ways that all of us shop, um, much more mainstream ways. And that, of course, contributes to dignity. And the idea of hot prepared foods, which is what normally SNAP customers can't use their benefits for, uh, we thought that, you know, that would be important. And we know that out of New York City, that two of the Congress people 
who have been urging that um, very forcefully are representatives Meng and Espiot. And they, they're really in keeping, if you think about it, with how do you leverage what might be available in the private sector, what might be good routes to get people things. Um, these are, by the way, particularly the use of hot prepared foods. Those are things the USDA's had long experience with allowing in SNAP in the case of disaster recovery. Mm-hmm. They'll allow them, you know, after a hurricane, if the state asks and says, you know, people are dislocated, they are not in their kitchens, they may not even be in their homes, they're going to need access to be able to get hot prepared foods. And they allow that. So it's not as if um, these things are science fiction by any stretch. Right. I would defer to you, Tom, on, you know, the mechanics of some of it uh, because of your particular expertise. This is why I think that, you know, possibly, you know, a, a nonprofit facility where you're producing food, not for profit, where it's not the, it's not the government that's doing it. I wasn't, I didn't want to suggest that, that the government should take over. So there's, there's a whole lot of logistics that go along with this, but I, I think, yeah, you let the people who know how to make hot food, let them make hot food. You figure out the way to distribute it. You let people use snap dollars to purchase it. Hopefully I, that could be a, a, a better way to go about this than, you know, again, to, to help people who can't prepare foods. But there, there's a lot that's been learned during COVID that business yeah. as usual isn't necessarily the way we're going to go, even after COVID and, you know, ends that certain things need to be, you know, flexible. Yeah. And my hope, and I've said this before, my my hope, and I I think looking at what happened with COVID, one one thing that that struck me is when I looked at the lines of cars, you know, that were lined up for three and four hours at a food bank or food distribution site looking to get food. And if you looked at that line, there were plenty of Mercedes Benz and, you know, BMWs in that, in that line. Um, and these were people who were solidly middle, upper middle class, you know, pre-pandemic, uh, who never had to worry about putting food on the table. And all of a sudden, both, you know, uh, both income earners out of work, uh, struggling. And so what I'm hoping is that there's a, a deeper sense of empathy that the average person has for someone that's struggling now. Because, you know, it, something can derail someone's very comfortable life very quickly. Well, Tom, I, I can't thank you enough for everything you do, but in particular, when there were efforts to really undermine SNAP over the years, really change it so that it wouldn't be able to respond as um, well to crises, whether they're economic or or um, disasters or weaken the benefits uh, structure that was there, you know, had those changes, some of which were tried by conservatives in the Farm Bill in 2018, some of them were tried in regulatory actions by the last administration. There's no way SNAP would be as as solidly prepared as it was to kick in um, during COVID-19. It it needed more. It needed more boosts and things. But as people fell into economic need, they were able to be enrolled. If they applied and went through the process, they were able to be enrolled. They weren't put on waiting lists. Some of the changes people had proposed over the years that would would have blocked, granted SNAP, for instance, those folks would have been on waiting lists and not have gotten the need, you know, met at all um, for quite some time. And the way the program structured and the fact that people like you have spoken up for it over the years meant that it really was a, a much better support during COVID-19. Not everything people need, it's still further strengthening needed, all of that. But that structure being in place was vital. And I want to thank you for, for saying what you just said. Um, but when, you know, when my wife started uh, her and Christy Jacobson, her partner, start working on uh, a place at the table. Uh, organizations like FRAC, uh, 
the Joel Bergs of the world, um, really gave us a, an education on on the system. You know, I I before that was very happy to raise money for anti hunger organizations as work as a as a chef, you know, showing up to to do events, um, but really didn't quite understand what was happening. And it wasn't until um, you know, Lori set out to, to, to make that film that we got a, a first rate education from organizations like yours. And also our, our next guest, Jim McGovern, the congressman from the great state of Massachusetts, um, who is the champion in Congress. I mean, there are others as well, but Jim, you know, along with uh, people like Rosa Delora and Shelly Pingree are, are real champions of uh, uh, hunger. But Jim, Jim certainly has been leading that charge from day one. And so, uh, um, so yeah, we got a, a great education on the program. And so it's, it was, it's, uh, it's been a, it's been an interesting last ten years uh, or so, but uh, hopefully we're in a better place, and, and hopefully we'll stay stay that way. And, and obviously, with organizations like yours, uh, we we do have a fighting chance of making sure that people in this in this country um, don't have to worry about uh, where their next meal is coming from. So thank thank you so much, Tom. Thank you. Stay well. Stick around for more Citizen Chef. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's eighty acres farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Hey, you're listening to Citizen Chef, and this week we're talking about the historic changes made to SNAP benefits. So our next guest is uh, 
Jim McGovern. Uh, Jim is a congressman from the 2nd Congressional District in Massachusetts. Um, He's also the head of the Rules Committee, which is a very big job. Um, But listen, I know Jim as the most anti-hunger advocate in Congress. Uh, we met back when my wife was making the film. Uh, he was was in the film and was was really just just amazing. Since then, uh, he has been uh, my go to uh, on the hill. If there was an issue uh, around hunger, I usually give him a phone call. He's he's been fighting poverty and hunger his entire life. You know, he started out uh, working as a as a, a Senate aide to Senator McGovern, who. Uh, for those that follow these things, uh, was really instrumental along with Senator uh, Dole from Kansas in creating and modernizing our food safety net um, way back in the 70s. And so it's my absolute pleasure to welcome uh, Congressman Jim McGovern to Citizen Chef. Hey, how you doing? Hello. How's it going? Everything is beautiful. Is it? In nice own, to hear. In its own way. Right. In its own way. Yeah. Under God's heaven. I, I know the song. <laughs> You have been so instrumental in in my education when it comes to why people are hungry in this country and what we can actually do about it. And, and I guess what I want to talk about today is we we finally got some really good news, and that is that that the, the the Biden White House acted on what the Trump White House could have acted on, um, and finally changed the thrifty food plan. And so this means so many great things for people who are struggling. Yeah, well, first of all, it's a huge deal. I mean, it's the first update in more than forty five years. Uh, and, you know, they earlier this month at the direction of Congress uh, in the 2018 uh, uh, USDA, uh, in, in, 20, in 2018, the USDA updated the benefit calculation uh, for SNAP and, and the benefits levels now, um, you know, the, the benefit levels had been steady for years. I mean, there was no increase at all. Uh, and before the pandemic, the average SNAP benefit was about $1.40 per person per meal. My Dunkin' Donuts coffee cost more than that. Uh, and, uh, you know, we know, uh, people need more money to be able to buy not just food, but more nutritious food. And this will, um, increase, uh, at a, uh, the amount people get by about on average $36 a month, which doesn't sound like a whole b- a lot, but it's, it's a big deal, uh, when it comes to, uh, somebody who's food insecure. So, um, so this is, this is a major step in the right direction. Let's talk about how difficult it is for people who are, are, are using SNAP dollars to feed their family. I know uh, you took the SNAP challenge, and the, the SNAP challenge is to uh, live a, a month using the money that's allocated for SNAP for, for, for your, your, your household food. And co- you mentioned coffee. And to me, co- if I remember correctly, coffee was your downfall. Right. Let's talk about how, how, how you, you dealt with the. Uh, with uh, the Snapchat. Well, coffee didn't fit into my budget. I mean, you know, again, about a dollar forty per person per meal, and you know, that's what I had a budget myself uh, with. And and, and uh, you know, I had to decide: am I going to, you know, get uh, you know food, or am I going to get coffee? And uh, if I could do it over again, I get the coffee uh, because I'm so <laughs> addicted to coffee. But the bottom line is, uh, the Snap benefit is not enough uh, for people to live on, and it's certainly not enough to have a nutritious diet. And I mean, I, I'm, you know, I just finished two days of farm tours in my district of Massachusetts. And one of the things that's been really encouraging to me is that more and more farms are, you know, are accepting uh, SNAP benefits. More and more farms are, and farm stands are, are, are part of this, you know, healthy initiatives program where you double your SNAP dollars if you buy uh, fresh fruits and vegetables at a, at a farm stand or at a farm. So those are, you know, some ways that our local farmers are connecting with communities that are struggling. 
Well, look, we, we need to understand that uh, a healthy diet uh, cannot be had on a SNAP budget. And we need to fix that because, you know, when we talk about ending hunger or food insecurity, it's not just about filling up your stomach. It should be about, you know, also helping improve your health and your well-being. I don't want to solve one problem by giving you lousy food and you end up with another problem, which is diabetes or heart disease or high blood pressure. So everything is connected here. Right, right. Again, looking at your, your feet, a Global Village Farm. Is that one of the farms that you visit? Tell me, tell me about that. Yeah, that was the, okay. yeah no, I mean, um, the, the woman um, uh, yeah, 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 who runs it is from um, uh, originally from Guatemala. Um, it's, um, you know, a, a local tribe uh, basically controls uh, that land. Uh, and they are, you know, trying to uh, not only grow things and get it to people who, who need it, but they're also trying to teach people how to farm, how to grow things. So they invite people on the farm. So if you, if you want to, you know, you want to farm on your own, you can. They also provide these um, these farm boxes that they can help you retrofit for your uh, for your yard at home so that you can grow things. I mean, their view is that everybody should be growing something. Everybody can be a farmer, whether it's a pot or whether it's, you know, 50 acres of land. Um, you know, uh, we all could do something. And, um, you know, and they're very much dedicated to giving back to the community and to respecting the land and farming in a way uh, that uh, respects the land. Um, you know, they provide C- CSAs uh, to people who struggle um, and those people can use their SNAP benefits uh, or their or, their, or this um, healthy incentives program to be able to, to get access. And so our farmers are in the forefront of, of, of trying to end hunger in this country and trying to end uh, nutrition insecurity as well. Right. That, that's so important that you mentioned that because you're right. I mean, you know, nutrition is expensive in this country. Your food, you know, calories are cheap. And so if you're trying to feed your family healthy food, if you want to go to a farmer's market, you're buying fruits and vegetables, it's, it's so much more expensive. Um, and, and yet you're, you're right. I and mean, what we don't want to do is, is, is having people eating really unhealthy food because I think currently right now we're spending about $200 billion a year on health related costs that are associated with poor diet. So we certainly don't want to, don't want to create more, more of a, of a health issue. Um, you know, this is something I, I covered a lot of ground with the, with the thrifty food program with, uh, our previous guest, uh, Ellen Dollinger, who oh, yeah, she's well. a great friend. And, and, yeah, she was she was on right before you, and we talked a lot about that. And um, so I, I thought we could take the time to really focus on something that I know uh, for as long as I've known you, you've been you've been fighting for, and uh, and that is the, the White House Conference on Hunger. Right. Um, I believe the last one was in 1969. Now you were were you an aide in 69 to, to Senator McGovern? No, I was an aide in the late 1970s to Senator McGovern. 1970. So so you. So you weren't at that last that last conference. I wasn't. No, I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, but George McGovern, when I worked for him in the late 1970s, yeah. uh, headed up the Special Select Committee on Nutrition and Human Needs, um, and right. you know that was a, a a committee that was that cut across jurisdictional you know uh, boundaries of the regular committees and actually focused in on how we end hunger. And that conference that you mentioned that happened 52 years ago. Um, while it was imperfect and people, a lot of people with lived experiences, their voices weren't heard. And, and some of the complexities of this country, uh, you know, weren't elevated. I mean, you know, tribal communities, you know, have different challenges than, you know, uh, you know, you know, many of our, uh, our other communities. And we have territories in this country. And we have, I mean, it's, it's very complicated. So one glove doesn't fit all. But in any event, that conference helped us help produce WIC. 
uh, it helped, uh, you know, produce the modern day food stamp program and uh, helped uh, emphasize the importance of child nutrition. It did a lot. Um, and there's much more to do. And that's where we pick up with this second conference. And the goal here is to have everybody at the table. I mean, everybody, including people with lived experiences. And it's designed to connect all the dots and to come up with a holistic plan to not manage hunger, but end it. But do so in a way that addresses a whole bunch of other challenges. You know, it's, you know the way our system is set up, you know, we, we only talk about little slivers of this debate, you know, at a time. You know, it's all SNAP one day, or it's a child nutrition another day, or it's you know, senior citizen food insecurity or college student insecurity. We need to talk about everything. And it, it also means that we need to look at our systems holistically and understand we need to change things, not just the way we deliver food and the kind of food we provide people, uh, not just the benefit, but also how we integrate nutrition and agriculture in our school system. I mean, I've, been, I've visited schools that have done that. It's, it's incredible. And yet there's such resistance in other school districts to even doing that. They're just crazy. Kids should, right. who learn about nutrition early on, you know, they can teach their parents. Kids parents are good exactly. teachers, right? And um, and it's, 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 all, it's all good. I mean, I visited the, you probably visited the Green Bronx Machine in, um, in, in New York, uh, Stephen Ritz's program. What he's done in that school um, is amazing. Um, again, I mean, it fits for that school in the Bronx, but it could be replicated other places. Our medical system is so detached from food and nutrition. You want crappy food, go to a hospital. You know, I mean, and uh, you don't even have to be a patient to have bad food. You know, go into the cafeteria. But yet we need to understand that our, that so many of our doctors are not trained in nutrition. Uh, and if they can write out a prescription to help lower your blood pressure, you know, that's costly. Why, why can't they write you out a food prescription? Um, so we, we, we have to look at everything. And uh, and that's what this conference will, will do. Yeah, so I want to focus on something that you said. We manage hunger. And we need to focus on ending hunger. What, what, listen, we, have, we have the resources to end hunger, right? We have enough food in this country. People aren't hungry because of famine, because of war, because of drought. People are hungry. Not, not yet anyway. That, that could be coming if we don't figure that, that out. Um, but uh, the managing to ending hunger, what has to happen in, in between those two things to, to make that happen? Yeah. So I, as I say, hunger is a political condition. I mean, we need to have the political will. I mean, it's that simple. But I mean, I've been in, in trying to win support for this conference. I've been talking to President Biden's cabinet officials. I talked to Secretary Vilsack. He says he's on board. And I'm really grateful for that. But I talked to Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. I said, I need you to be on the on board on this. And he and I and I explained why because transportation plays a role in in addressing the 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 the, the challenge of getting food to people in need. We need refrigerated trucks. People live in food deserts. I, I visited this company in Phoenix uh, a few weeks ago called Noro. If you ever watch TV and you see this, this unmanned vehicle delivering pizzas to people, well, you know what? They're interested in figuring out how whether they can play a role in food delivery for people in need. We ought to, you know, I don't know how far away that is, but we ought to, we ought to look at that. Um, I talked to Dennis McDonough, the secretary of the VA. He's on board because we have a lot of veterans who are hungry. We have active duty military servicemen and women who are hungry. Everybody has a role. And the pandemic thrust a whole bunch of people who never thought they would ever be hungry or food insecure. And so I think there's a greater awareness of how vulnerable we are. You know, you, you could be working and making 
what would be considered a decent wage in Mitchell, South Dakota, but it's not a livable wage in New York City or it's not a livable wage in San Francisco or Boston. And yet, oftentimes, those are the people, you know, who are hungry, even with their wages, but they are eligible for nothing. We're talking about 37 million people. So I, I, I got to believe we can do a hell of a lot better than yeah, that. I'm always, always uh, interested in how people got to where they are. You know, when when did you recognize this was such an issue? Because uh, you've been fighting this fight for a long time. But can you go back to when when you actually realized that, that there are a lot of hungry people here and that government has a role to actually... So it was when I was, a, a you know, a, a, a college paid intern for Senator George McGovern. Uh, you know, get no relation. They paid, they paid, they paid interns they, back they, then? They paid back then. Then they stopped paying. Now we're paying again, okay. which is a good thing. Okay. Um, but I, you know, I sat through many of those hearings that he had in the Select Committee on... On, on nutrition and human needs. And I heard him talk about um, his experiences with people. And, and I went with him on a number of, uh, of his, um, of his vis- site visits and I saw people who were hungry. And then I got elected to Congress uh, and people started coming in my office looking for food, you know, and I've been to schools um, in my district where kids are hungry. My two sisters teach in the Worcester public school system. They talk about it all the time. I mean, I've, I, I just I see it all around, and I know sometimes we try to not look at things that are uncomfortable to look at, but it's there. And here's the bottom line: what motivates me now is I'm just ashamed. I, I, I just really am. I mean, I'm a United States congressman, right? Um, uh, you know, I've never been hungry. Uh, uh, you know, I've never been poor. Um, and you know, I mean, there are people that I represent, there are people all throughout this country who don't know where the next meal is going to come from. And we can find the money to build nuclear weapons. We can find the money to send arms to that country, this country. We can find money for tax cuts uh, for, you know, billionaires and millionaires. And and yet, you know, we, we tolerate this. You know, Hillary Clinton says it takes a village. She's right. I say it takes a plan. I mean, because you need the village to advocate for something. And it's this plan. And we can do it. I mean, I, this is this is not a problem that cannot be solved, and that's what makes it so maddening. Yeah, you know, so much of this takes vision. It, it, it takes a, 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 just looking down the road. And say, what, what does America look like without hungry people? Politicians who have diminished the struggle of those who are in poverty. They have uh, demonized people on SNAP. They have put out a narrative that doesn't represent the reality. Um, and so there's a lot of this misinformation out there. I mean, people say to me, oh, you know, people are on SNAP forever. No, they're not. Yeah. I mean, months, six- yeah, you know, even the statistics from the Trump White House, uh, you, Trump USDA would tell you the average person's on there less than a year. And that's and that's why what, what the, what the uh, Biden administration did um, with increasing the SNAP benefit, recalculating, you know, what constitutes a nutritional meal is important. And that's why Congress needs to do the right thing and pass this second infrastructure, this human infrastructure package, we can make some of these things more permanent. And, um, and I hope that we do that by the end of September. Uh, Jim, listen, this has been, it's been great talking to you. And, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, this is a lesson that we learned from Marianne Chilton, who I, I know you know well, um, that you need to hear from people who are actually experiencing hunger um, and hear from them. It's not about just the people like us that are trying to, 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 to alleviate it, but really hearing from those people with the lived experiences. But you, but you and Laurie have, have helped elevate that. And, 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 and the reason why those voices are important, um, not only because they have firsthand knowledge of what works and what doesn't work, but I think it's hard for any human being 
to turn away from somebody telling their lived experience, telling their life story. Um, I think I think it's a powerful motivator for politicians of both parties to actually do something. We're going to do this. I feel really good about it. I really do. Thanks again to Jim McGovern for joining us today. You know, what he says is so true. You know, kids are out there suffering. And, uh, you know, listen, if they weren't hungry, they would do better in school. Uh, they would do better in sports. They would do better in life. You know, those SNAP benefits, they, they really benefit so many, so many people. Again, I wanted to talk with Ellen because she's been on the front lines making these changes happen for years. And, you know, those changes don't just happen overnight. They take lots of careful planning and research. 45 years is a long time, and I bet it was tempting to give up the fight. But those changes are necessary to the overall health of our entire nation, not just those using these benefits. It was a relief to see those headlines, so I am so honored that Ellen and Jim took the time to talk to us and explain why so many families can breathe a little easier tonight. You can think and plan a dream so much more when you don't have to worry about whether you'll have dinner tomorrow night. And I can't wait to see what comes out of all that extra dreaming. Citizen Chef is executive produced by Christopher Hasiotis, produced by Gabby Collins, and researched by Lillian Holman. And as always, a special thanks to A Place at the Table. Citizen Chef is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like this, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.